0: every so often, I don't know the science on this, Sean, you could totally correct me. Every so often, there's this alignment that takes place between sun and moon and earth that we call an eclipse, where, the, where things take just the perfect shape, just the perfect position and create this unique opportunity to see the world and space and the star, the stars and the sun and moon, in a way that we've never seen them before, right? That we just on an ordinary basis don't get to see it. And there's this interesting thing that happens in that moment. The planets align, if you will, not the planets. He's going to correct me. The stars align, uh, and and this eclipse takes place. And it's always all over the news and Facebook, and everyone's going, "Okay, you got to go outside, but don't look directly at it, of course." But Or get these special glasses and go look at the eclipse, right? And see this thing that's going to happen. I think what takes place at the end of John 11 is really a lot like an eclipse, spiritually speaking. We see this very intricate, interesting alignment between the sovereign plan and will of God and the limited and even fallen and sinful will of man, but they... Line up with one another for a moment, and we see this incredible glimpse of the wisdom of God in the plan that is unfolding before us in the pages of John's gospel as Jesus is just days away now from going to the cross. So, as we turn to John chapter 11, we'll be in the very end of the chapter, verses 45 and following. Have in mind this eclipse of God's will and man's will aligned in this very interesting, ironic kind of way that we'll get to uh, later in in the passage. But I think it all culminates in this moment, this spiritual eclipse, if you will. So just as a reminder, John 11 has been chiefly concerned up to this moment with uh, the illness and death and then raising of Lazarus, a friend of Jesus from the village of Bethany, which is just two miles outside of Jerusalem, Jesus was sent word that Lazarus was ill, and he waited, it says because he loved them, he waited uh, and didn't leave for Bethany until he knew that Lazarus had died and Then they traveled to Bethany, uh, Jesus and his disciples, and they found Mary and Martha and the family grieving and mourning over the loss of Lazarus because he was too late in their uh, understanding and their view. And then we saw the incredible miracle in last week's verses where Jesus goes to the tomb. He says, remove the stone, and over Martha's objections, it's going to smell kind of bad. He's been in there for four days, right? Remove the tomb, They, they they roll the stone away, and Jesus, just with words, calls out, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man, bound in cloths, stands and walks out of his grave. He didn't go and perform CPR or any kind of like voodoo chants and stuff. He just spoke to him and out he came. So interestingly, uh, John gave very little attention to the response of people uh, to this miracle. We get a little glimpse just in a sentence, of how people respond to uh, the raising of Lazarus. And just like every time Jesus performs some miraculous sign, there's a divided response. There are some who believe, and there's some who don't. Look with me at verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. so there are some who saw the miracle, saw the raising of Lazarus, and believed. But some of them, verse 46, went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, this is an obvious indication of unbelief, right? Some of them believed, but some of them went to the Pharisees. So obviously the telling of the Pharisees of what they had seen is an act of unbelief. It didn't convince them, didn't persuade them that Jesus was the son of God or the Messiah. But it even is probably an act of hostility. Like these, these people, whoever they are, these Jews from the crowd have set themselves against Jesus to the point that they're going to go now tattle on him to his enemies, right? So they go to the Pharisees and they say, Jesus is in Bethany and he just raised the guy from the dead, all right? So belief and unbelief, and that's how it always is. Jesus acts a miracle. Jesus speaks and kind of explains what he's done, what it means and how the sign points to his identity as the son of God and as the Messiah and the savior of the world. And some believe and some don't because their hearts are hard and they're not ready to believe even though they've seen. And so the Sanhedrin plots together in verses 47 through 53. We're going to skip that for now. It's the heart of this, uh, this part of the story, the response to, to Lazarus raising, but we're going to skip it for now and come back to it. So the Sanhedrin comes together, these chief leaders, these religious leaders, to talk about what they're going to do. And then at the end of the passage, verse 54 through 57, we find the result of all of this is that Jesus basically goes into hiding for a little bit. Jesus says in verse 54, therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. So Jesus kind of goes to the wilderness. This is probably more like 10 miles or so away from Jerusalem. So there's a little more distance between him and the war zone, if you will, enemy territory. And he kind of camps out there with his disciples and waits essentially for Passover. Verse 55 tells us, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Remember Passover is an annual festival that God himself initiated, instituted for the people of Israel back in the book of Exodus that we've been reading this week. He instituted this feast and this festival in remembrance of God's deliverance of the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt and specifically how he delivered uh, their sons, their firstborn sons, from the plague of death with the blood of the lamb that they smeared on the door. At Passover each year, Jews from all over Palestine would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem, this little town of about 50,000 people, would swell to about four times its size. So one hundred fifty to 200,000 people are in Jerusalem now to make their sacrifices and offerings and ritual worship for Passover. So this is the setting that's beginning to unfold in Jerusalem. So look at verse 55. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. That is, to go through these, these kind of rituals of, of cleansing and ceremonious uh, worship. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? And then verse 57 tells us the result Of the Sanhedrin's meeting that we'll get to in just a minute. Verse 57 says Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So Jesus is hiding in the wilderness uh, until the Passover comes about. And as these Jews are coming into the city for Passover, there's a buzz, there's chatter about Jesus and there's, everybody knows the ruling, okay, the Pharisees have said, if you know where Jesus is, tell us so that we can arrest him. So that's the shape of this part of the story, the response to the raising of Lazarus, all right? We're going to spend some time now uh, inside this meeting of the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin is essentially the Jewish Supreme Court. This is the highest court of appeal, the highest authority for the Jews. It's the chief priests and the Pharisees and the kind of highest religious officials uh, in their nation and in their their religious system. So the Sanhedrin is the top dogs, right? So when the Supreme Court makes a ruling, it becomes the law of the land, right? That's pretty much what the Sanhedrin does. So they gather together, verse 47, uh, excuse me, verse 46 tells us, no, it is 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, that is the Sanhedrin, the Greek word behind that is Sanhedrin, and they said, so the topic of discussion among this meeting of the Supreme Court, among this meeting of the Sanhedrin is, what are we going to do about Jesus? What are we going to do about Jesus? Verse 47, they gathered together and they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So we get a glimpse here into why Jesus is a problem for them. Because you would think that they would at least give some consideration to the fact that maybe Jesus actually is. The Messiah. Maybe he really is who he says that he is and who we've been waiting for and teaching about and longing to come. They don't seem to give that much consideration. To them, Jesus is a problem to be solved. How do you solve a problem like Jesus? Is kind of how they're singing. So, there's three reasons that we see that Jesus is a problem to the Sanhedrin. The first of those reasons is the fragile political arrangement that the Jews have with Rome. Now remember that Jerusalem and the Jewish nation is under Roman occupation. So they're just a part of the Roman empire at this time. But as long as the Jews sort of kept to themselves and didn't cause a stir or things got out of hand, the Roman authorities were happy to kind of just let them manage their own business and their own affairs. So the Sanhedrin could make their rulings and determinations about how Jerusalem and the Jews around Palestine would carry out their kind of religious life together. And Rome was kind of okay letting them do that as long as things didn't get out of hand. So there was relative peace and freedom on the part of these leaders, the Sanhedrin, to manage their own affairs as long as they could keep quiet, right? And not become a problem to uh, the emperor, all right? So and that's an arrangement, but it's fragile, it's temperamental, like things might go wrong. And if too much shifts and Rome kind of catches wind, then suddenly there's going to be an issue. So the first reason that Jesus is a problem for them is that there's this fragile political arrangement between Rome and Jerusalem. The second reason that Jesus is a problem to them is messianic expectation among the Jews. In other words, the Jews have been looking for and waiting for the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament Scriptures. They read the prophet Isaiah, and they read uh, the, the, the Psalms and, and even the Torah, and they see there's this one coming who's going to reign on the throne of David forever. And he's going to lead God's people, Israel, into uh, this, this kingdom that's never going to end. As Passover is drawing near, and thousands of Jews from around Palestine are making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem, there is a heightened religious fervor, if you will. This is kind of like a chief, this is the biggest festival of the year, right? So people are more aware, more in tune with their religious instincts and the teachings of God's word. There's this heightened awareness among the Jews at the time. And given the fragile arrangement between Rome and Jerusalem, manage your affairs, but kind of keep it quiet. And this, this religious heightening, this expectation, and this looking for the Messiah, who they believed would come in on a chariot and kick out the Romans and give the Jews back their land, right? And set up his kingdom. John Piper says, this was like dry kindling, waiting for the match of messianic fever to land. So all it takes in this environment is for the people to become convinced we think the Messiah is here for there to be an uprising, if you will. And they're looking for political revolt and revolution, and they expect the Messiah to bring it. So the third reason, therefore, that Jesus is a problem to them is that he is really popular. Jesus' popularity is at its peak at this point. And we saw that in verse 56, as the Jews were coming into Jerusalem, they were looking for Jesus, right? I'm going to Jerusalem for my own personal religious voyage and pilgrimage to make sacrifice for Passover. But I want to know what Jesus is up to. I want to see, is he going to come? And they're even talking among themselves. What do you think? Do you think he'll come? Do you think Jesus will even be here? Is he going to be hiding because he knows the Pharisees are after him? Is he going to be there and make speeches like he has before, and tell us who he is. People want to see Jesus. So his popularity is at its peak. And many are believing that Jesus is the Messiah, just as they said in verse 47, 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And what's going to happen? Rome will come and take away both our place and our nation. So the problem for the Sanhedrin these Jewish leaders in a nutshell is this. The power and freedom that they enjoy in the current fragile arrangement with Rome will be threatened if excitement over Jesus as the Messiah leads to a Jewish uprising because Rome will be forced to crush it. Rome will be forced to ride in and put them back in their place and they will no longer enjoy their position and their power and their prestige. I find it interesting that they're not particularly concerned with whether Jesus is actually the Messiah or not. Their job, I mean, these are the chief priests and the Pharisees. Their job really is to teach God's word, lead God's people in his ways, and I would think, therefore, to recognize Messiah when he shows up. And if they do recognize him when he comes, what should they do? They should support him. They should believe in him. They should follow him. They should tell the people, we found the Messiah. Let's follow him. That is their job. And he should, but, but they don't care. They don't care if, whether Jesus is the Messiah or not. All they know is if people go after Jesus, then our power, our position, our prestige are gone. And that can't happen. We love our place and our nation too much. So what do we do about Jesus? That's where the Sanhedrin is. Sometimes Jesus is a threat to our position, isn't he? Sometimes going after Jesus, believing him, following him, speaking of him, taking a stand for him, threatens our place, threatens our comfort. Our status, our relationships, our jobs, our security. If I talk to another student about Jesus, I'm going to get laughed at. I'll be the religious kid. If I become known as a Christian in my secular workplace, I might not get that promotion that's been talked about. If I take a stand for Jesus in the public square, I might be ridiculed, seen as narrow minded. I might even lose some friends. May the Lord grant us the courage to be those who believe Jesus, follow Jesus, and stand for Jesus, even when it means our relationships and our reputations might suffer because of it. Woe to these religious leaders, these teachers of the law, who have the Messiah in front of them, And instead of bowing their heart and their knee and worshiping him and following him and supporting him, they devise ways to get rid of him because they love their place and their nation. May that not be true of us. May we always be willing to stand with Jesus no matter what it costs us. Something of a cautionary tale for us in there. Well, the Sanhedrin meeting continues where Caiaphas, the high priest, speaks up. He is, now the the high priest, if you you think back to the the kind of uh, the sacrificial system and the system of worship that God instituted for Israel, the high priest is the one who is authorized to enter the holy place in the temple on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, that's what that means. When the day of atonement comes, the high priest enters the holy place and makes sacrifices for the sins of the people. That's the high priest's role, to represent the people before holy God. Remember that, because his role as high priest will become very important in just a few minutes. So Caiaphas is going to speak up. In verses 49 and 50, he offers something very similar to what Dr. Seuss said of the Grinch he got an idea, an awful idea. The Grinch got a wonderful, awful idea. This is what Caiaphas is about to say. Here it is. Essentially, Jesus needs to die. That's his idea. He's too dangerous. The likelihood of the people following him and creating a stir that Rome can't ignore is too high. The risk too great. If that happens, the whole nation, that is all the Jewish people, will be in jeopardy. Look at his statement in verse 49. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. He's probably right about that. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. It's better for you that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. So if Jesus has such a following that is going to create this revolt and this uprising that Rome is going to have to come and squash, it's better for all of us if we just get rid of him. Why don't we just kill him? Just get him out of the way. You can see this is a full-blown, wicked, hard-hearted, self-obsessed motivation. Apparently, the Sanhedrin saw the twisted wisdom in his suggestion because verse 53 tells us that from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. That's the end result of this meeting. All right? We're going to kill him. We've got plans. We've got a plot to put him to death. And the plot will unfold in the following chapters. This is no longer an angry mob impulsively picking up stones to throw at him. This is an organized, legally sanctioned hunt for a national fugitive. That is what is going on with Jesus right now. As he is hanging out in Ephraim with his disciples the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of the Jewish nation go, we're going to get him and we're going to kill him. Now here's where the eclipse starts to happen. Caiaphas utters this obviously godless, sinful, self-preserving plan. Let's kill Jesus. Let him die for the nation so that we can stay in place we can maintain our position and our power and our prestige. But John, I'm so glad he did this. John gives us a glimpse into what's going on behind Caiaphas' words. There's something else at play in what Caiaphas says that Caiaphas himself knew nothing about. And Caiaphas becomes, if you will, an unwitting prophet of God. Look in verse 51. And 52, Caiaphas has just said, it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And here's what John tells us. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Prophecy is not just predicting the future. We tend to think of it that way. See, he's not merely saying Caiaphas predicted that Jesus would die. But that's not really what the prophets did, though prophecy sometimes contained a foretelling of the future. The prophets spoke the mind and will of God to God's people. That is what a prophet did. Caiaphas isn't just predicting. That Jesus will die, he is speaking God's mind and will. Obviously, not of his own accord, as John says, not because he intends to give honor to God or be a mouthpiece for God to the Sanhedrin or to the people. He is speaking unwittingly the mind and will of God when he says, It is better that Jesus die for the nation. And we see in this the subversive wisdom of God where he takes something that Caiaphas intended for evil and he flips it on its head. See, Caiaphas only has self-preservation in mind. There's some, uh, his, he intends his words to communicate to the Sanhedrin, let's wrongfully murder this one man so that we can keep our seat at the table. And we won't lose our positions, power, and prestige. But God intends to communicate something infinitely bigger and better and more important that's going on in the death of Jesus than your puny, self-obsessed mind could conceive. This is a practical outworking of the truth expressed by Joseph in Genesis 50, verse 20, where he said to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. This is how God works. God works within the sinful, wicked decisions and motivations of fallen people, and he turns it on his head to accomplish his good and redeeming purposes. So Caiaphas has only self-preservation in his mind, but God says, no, there's something much bigger and infinitely better and more important going on in the death of Jesus than you saving your sorry seat at the table. You see, Caiaphas is thinking only of political position and power. He's saying, if Jesus dies, then the nation of Israel will continue to coexist with Rome and our political situation will remain intact. But God is saying, if Jesus dies, the nation of Israel, my covenant people, will be provided with the ultimate sacrifice for sin. And the veil of sin that separates them from me will be removed once and for all, securing eternal life and joy for the nation. Caiaphas didn't intend anything like that. When he said, "It's better for you that one man die for the nation," he's thinking about himself. God, through Caiaphas's words, is saying, "This is not for, just for you. This is for everybody. This is for the nation of Israel, my people. Jesus is going to die to become their sacrifice." And in this, in this truth, we see one of the most amazing bits of irony in this whole prophecy eclipse, where God's will and man's fallen will come into Unison. Remember that Caiaphas is the high priest. Remember that his job is to represent the people before God, to enter the holy place and to make sacrifice to atone for their sins. By Caiaphas' evil, self preserving scheme to do away with Jesus the troublemaker, he delivers the spotless Lamb of God to become the once for all sacrifice for sin, thereby making atonement for them and uniting them to God forever. This is what God is doing. This is what God is saying in the midst of his sinful, blasphemous hate and murder. It's not just for the nation of Israel. It's not just for your political situation. It's not certainly just so you can keep your position of power. It is so that the spotless Lamb of God, remember what John the Baptist said about Jesus back in John chapter one, behold, The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Caiaphas, the high priest, unwittingly puts forward the spotless Lamb of God. As the sacrifice of sin for his people. To make atonement. The eclipse. This is not what Caiaphas had in mind. The irony is so Perfect and so beautiful that it could only have been devised by the wisdom of God. Such that Caiaphas' own words have an accidental double meaning. Which tell us not only of the political uh, workings and personal motivations that would lead to Jesus' execution. But that reveal to us at the same time the deeper, truer meaning of Jesus' death. And assure us that God is working all the while within, around, and through the sinful decisions and actions of human beings. This is our God. Praise God for his wisdom. I couldn't help but think of Paul's words in Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Well, there's one more truth that we've got to draw out of Caiaphas' unwitting prophecy. And we'll spend our last few minutes of the message thinking about this together. So John told us in verse 51, Caiaphas didn't say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And then, verse 52 tells us even more detail about what God has in mind for the death of Jesus. What would be accomplished through the cross. Look at verse 52. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So that begs the question, who are these scattered children of God? Who are the children of God that are all over the place? Now, a first century Jew might have heard that phrase and thought of Jewish people who were living in the various regions of Palestine, the various places around the Roman Empire, scattered, if you will, among the Middle Eastern nations. But I think John has something else in view. I think we have a context clue to help us out. Just one chapter earlier, in John chapter 10, Jesus presented himself as the good shepherd. He spoke of his care and provision for his flock. In fact, he said he loves and provides for his flock so fiercely that he lays down his life for the sheep, verse 15. And then in John ten sixteen, he said this, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. This fold refers to the people of Israel. And other sheep that are not of this fold are the men, women, boys, and girls from all the other nations, peoples, ethnicities, and languages around the world who are not a part of the covenant people of God by birth or heritage, because they're not Jewish but who nevertheless would be included in God's one people because the father had given them to the son and the son would die to pay for their sins and bring them also to himself. That's what he was saying in John ten sixteen. I have other sheep that don't belong to this Jewish fold. They're from other nations and places and peoples and they're all over the place. And I must bring them also this is us. This, these children of God who are scattered abroad are non-Jewish people from all over the world throughout history who belong to Jesus Christ and for whom his death would seal a divine pardon. That's why John, the author of this gospel, records his vision of heaven in the book of Revelation, and he depicts a countless multitude around God's throne singing, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This multitude around the throne of Jesus Christ are people of God from every tribe and language and people and nation on the earth throughout history who belong to Jesus Christ. They were sheep that were not of that Jewish fold, and he must bring them also. That's why the Holy Spirit says to Paul in, of Corinth in Acts 18.10, I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for... I have many in this city who are my people. He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. What do you think the Spirit of God would say to us today about Baltimore about Perry Hall I believe he would say to us the very same thing that he said to Paul I have many in this city who are mine who are they who is it in Perry Hall in northeast Baltimore who belongs to Jesus Christ but need to be gathered in it could be that annoying coworker who's always ranting about politics it could be that lady at the salon who cuts your hair. It could be that quiet student at school who always seems to sit alone during lunch. It could be the obnoxious bully in your class that you can't believe hasn't been suspended yet. Maybe Jesus would say, he's mine. It could be the police officer who pulled you over for speeding. It could be that old guy who lives next door who always smiles at you when he goes out to get the mail. We have no idea. Every person that we see and that we interact with, we should have in our minds, is this one of God's scattered children that he is gathering to himself? It could be you. If you haven't repented of your sins and turned to Jesus Christ in faith, it could be that you're one of his scattered sheep and he's calling to you this morning. Come to me. Believe in me. Follow me. Don't ignore it. Don't delay it. Jesus died to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. I believe that many of those scattered children are right here in our community. We're around them every day. Would you join me in praying that we, Imprint Community Church, would be the mouthpiece for Christ in this community? inviting these scattered children into a relationship with Christ.